This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Reason We're Here, a study of the book of Acts. For more information, go to theaxischurch.org. Hi, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis. Um, if you're new with us and I haven't met you, um, it's great to be here again with you, and we're going to be continuing, as we have for, for several weeks now, um, journeying through the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In the past few weeks, um, as we've been going through chapters 10 and 11, We've seen how the gospel advanced to the Gentiles and to the outsider and to the despised. And we've seen that the reason God was sending his people to the Gentiles is because he has a purpose of saving for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we saw that God accomplished his his purpose of saving that people for himself by sending those who already believe to those who don't yet know that good news of the message of the gospel. And so now Luke, he, he wants to continue to show us how the gospel is going to continue to advance to the ends of the earth. So that'll start to happen. We, we'll see missionary journeys to people who have not yet believed the gospel and not yet heard of the gospel beginning in chapter 13. But before he transitions us there, he wants to remind us of what was taking place in the Jerusalem church, which is where the gospel and where the Holy Spirit fell on his church and began to create a people for himself. And so you may remember that in chapter 4 and on in the book of Acts, we see persecution and opposition begin to arise. And this persecution had largely not affected the apostles in particular in Jerusalem, And so as we come to chapter 12, that reality radically changes. Things begin to look dark for the Jerusalem church, and the apostles of the church in Jerusalem, they become the specific target of efforts to suppress the advance of the gospel. And what I hope for us to see and be changed by today is to to understand that the advancement of the gospel will continue despite worldly opposition. And this progress of the gospel, this advance of the kingdom will happen through God's power and through his praying people. So despite worldly opposition, the gospel will advance, and the way it's going to advance is through God's power and through his praying people. My prayer for this sermon has been that as we come to this text, that God would strengthen us, that he would embolden us to proclaim Jesus faithfully and to faithfully live on the mission of Christ, regardless of the social or religious or political climate in which we find ourselves. And that as a result of going through this text, we will become a more devoted people to prayer who depend desperately on the power of the Spirit and God's power to accomplish all things that he has set before us. So I pray that that happens. I pray that we are encouraged as a people as we 
learn what God is doing in advancing his kingdom and advancing the gospel. So let's look at, at chapter 12 and start in verse 1. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So evidently, sometime during the time when the Antioch church, so we read about at the end of chapter 11, when they are getting together and, and sending famine relief to the Jerusalem church, about that time, persecution begins to come to the church in Jerusalem as well. And this persecution is coming at the hand of Herod. And the Herod who is mentioned in verse 1, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, the, the Herod who tried to kill Jesus after his birth. And so this is his grandson who is now king. And Herod had been given this title of king, and he was ruling all of the, the region of Judea and Samaria and Galilee and the Decapolis. And so even though he was king, he was also always under the rule of Rome and the Roman emperor. And much of the territory that he had been given was given in, in basically due to the fact of his friendship with the Roman emperor. So Herod was a man of political expediency. He was a man who lacked integrity and basically lacked in compassion and mercy. But he was also someone who wanted to retain his kingship. And so he did all that he could to please the Jews and to make sure that he had a good standing and good favor with the Jewish people so that they wouldn't cause any problems to the point of Rome having to come and intercede and figure out what's going on. And you may know, may know very well that much wickedness and evil takes place when political figures are vying for power and seeking to keep certain groups happy because that is always to the detriment of other groups, normally those without any power. And so this movement of Christians, what they probably see is this little sect of Judaism it's beginning to be an actual movement, and so it catches the attention of Herod, and Herod begins to take things into his own hands to the point that he kills the Apostle James, the brother of the Apostle John. And much like with Jesus, this pleased the Jews. And so Herod also then puts Peter in prison. And so Herod surely knew that, that Peter... And James were both leaders in the early church. Herod for sure knew that, that Peter and John had es escaped Ju the Jewish authorities that we read about in Acts chapter 5. And so apparently Herod believed that if he was to kill the leaders of this movement, then he would kill the movement as well. And so Peter here isn't just imprisoned, but 
He's actually imprisoned with Roman soldiers shackled to both arms and guarding the door. And he has a rotation of soldiers coming in every few hours to ensure maximum security, to assure maximum alertness so that Peter would not escape this time. Peter's in prison. He's waiting to be executed. And the reason for the delay, Luke tells us, is that the feast of the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover was taking place. And so Herod was not going to run the risk of losing favor with the Jews by executing Peter during this Holy Week and thereby desecrate it. And so he waits, his plan is to wait until the Passover is over. And while Peter's in the cell waiting to be executed, the church is earnestly devoted to prayer, earnestly devoting themselves to prayer for Peter specifically. When things are dark, there is no other option than to pray. And the most effective means for the people of God to ensure Peter's safety and probably his deliverance was for them to pray, for them to cry out on his behalf. And Peter was probably in prison for some time. And so the church continued to pray for Peter. And then in verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. I mean, based on this picture, you would think that, that Peter is like Jason Bourne or something. Like, there's soldiers, there's shackles, there's people at the door. Like he's not, the point is like Peter is not going anywhere. He's not getting away this time. And notice that the Peter is sleeping the night before he's about to be brought out and most likely executed. I mean, you don't, you don't sleep before you're about to be killed if, especially killed for your belief and trust in someone that you say has risen from the dead. So it, once again, it's, it's very evident that, that Peter's not denying Jesus here, like as he has done in the past. He is a changed man. Something is drastically different. I'd say that reason is because Jesus indeed had risen from the dead, and he had had changed Peter. So he's waiting to be executed. And in verse 7, on the very night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out, and he followed him. And he did not know that what, that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was having a vision. And so Peter thinks he's having some crazy vision, maybe some dream about being released from these Roman soldiers and released from his imprisonment. And again, notice that everything that's taking place here in this text is happening at the initiative of this angel who was sent by the Lord. And I think the honesty of Peter not knowing what was happening 
I think this testifies to the accuracy and his historicity of this event because this is, this is Peter. This is like somebody who's called the pillar of the church in Galatians. This is Peter who was with Jesus, who had seen visions. He had seen miraculous things, who went on to write two of our New Testament books, and yet he doesn't know an angel, like He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't realize, like, oh, that's probably an angel. And so I I would think if you're making that up, like, you probably leave that out. That seems kind of weird that Peter doesn't know what's happening. And even more, in verse 10, when they passed the first guard and then the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter gets into the city. He's free of chains. He's not being pursued by the guards that he knows of. And he comes to himself and he realizes that the Lord had delivered and rescued him. What's not taking place here is that Peter Peter did not escape his imprisonment. Like that's not what happened. The Lord, he says, delivered him. God had rescued him. The church was praying and the Lord answered their prayer. And what we see here is a struggle between two kingdoms. Peter was delivered from the hand of Herod. And you remember last week that the hand of the Lord was with the disciples. There's a struggle here between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We see Herod trying to destroy the church, trying to stop the advance of the gospel, trying to kill the leaders of this Christian movement. The, pr- the problem is, is that the advance of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom and the building of the church does not ultimately depend on man. It doesn't ultimately depend on James or Peter or any other apostle or any other leader in the church. The advance of the gospel and the kingdom of God ultimately depends on the promises of God. It ultimately depends on the promise of Jesus that he will build his church. And so the kingdom will advance and God's purposes will not be thwarted because God is the one doing it. And so in the midst of so much political and social anxiety about who our president's going to be and so on, And while we seemingly lose our place in society and get pushed to the margins, the church is not losing the battle. Like The advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God does not depend on America being a Christian nation. It doesn't depend on Trump or Hillary or Gary Johnson or whoever. It it just doesn't depend on them. It doesn't, the progress of the gospel doesn't rise or fall on whether Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians are in power. The world will hate us. The enemy will oppose us. Jesus said that. That's as true of a promise as Jesus saying, I will build my church. 
And so both of those things are going to take place. And Christian leaders, Christian leaders are going to come and they're going to go. Like Jeremy Rose and Jacob Henley and Lee Seal and Nate Wood, like we're, we're going to die. It's going to be like there's coming a day. Like the Christian leader or preacher or pastor or theologian that you so look up to and respect and see doing such the work of God, like he is going to pass. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. And it will not advance through worldly or political means or through worldly power. And so whether Christianity sits at the center of culture or whether it's pushed to the margins or whether it is illegal, the gospel of Jesus cannot be stopped. Jesus himself said, I will build my church. And he's been doing so for 2,000 years. And so the church will continue despite worldly opposition and because Jesus is the one building his church. So rest assured that his kingdom will win. So Peter is released. He's rescued. In verse 12, it says, When he realized this, he then went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. By implication, praying for Peter. And so Peter is rescued. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is the author of the gospel of, the, of Mark that we have in our New Testament. And this was likely, he goes there because he expects to find the people of God there. He expects that the church will be gathered there. And they were. And he finds the people praying, having a late night prayer meeting. I mean, this is in the middle of the night. And he finds them praying, even likely for Peter himself. I'm sure that they were praying for, among other things, but definitely in this text and in this context, they're praying for Peter. And so in verse 13, when he had knocked at the gate or the doorway of the gateway, this servant girl named Rhoda, she comes to answer. Church praying for Peter. Rhoda comes, she answers, and she recognizes Peter's voice. And in her joy... She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And so I hope that you can see the humor, the irony here. Like scripture is serious. Scripture is weighty. But there's also th times in scripture where it is ironic. This is one of those times. Like the church is praying. They're praying earnestly, devoting themselves to prayer for Peter, his safety, his deliverance. And Peter gets miraculously delivered. And he goes to the house where they're praying, and Rhoda doesn't even open the door for him. Like, she just leaves him standing out there. Peter's probably wondering if the Roman soldiers are coming to find him. He's probably looking over his shoulder. I mean, have, have you ever been so radically excited that you see somebody unexpectedly, and then you, instead of, like, embracing them or talking to them, you just, like, turn around and run the other way and tell people? Like, I haven't, but I'm sure some of you have. Like... And so more than that, they said to her, she goes back and tells them, the people who are praying for Peter, and she says that Peter's standing at the gate, and they say, you are out of your mind. Like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it's too late in the night. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, maybe it's his angel. And so 
Luke records here that the church is praying, but their, their prayers are not perfect. Like the prayers of the church are answered, but those who are praying find it unbelievable that God actually is, could answer their prayers. They probably and likely think that Peter is already dead. They found it easier to believe that than the fact that Peter was actually standing at the gate. But Peter continues, like he's standing outside, continually beating at the door. And when they opened it, they saw him. They didn't see his angel. They didn't see his, like, they saw Peter. And they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, because they're probably overwhelmingly excited at this point. It's in the middle of the night, and Peter has just, quote unquote, escaped imprisonment from Roman soldiers. So he tells them, like, be quiet. And he tells them how the Lord delivered him and brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Likely leaving, because again, this is probably a house church that was maybe known at the time. And so that's probably not where you want to stay. And so he leaves to find safety. And now when day came, verse 18, there was no little disturbance, to say the least, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. These soldiers received the punishment that should have been coming to the prisoner that they were supposed to be guarding and watching. And so no doubt Herod is confused. He's angry. And Peter is nowhere to be found. The kingdom of darkness will not prevail against the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God. This is further communicated in the following verses. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, which is kind of like a chief of staff here. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So basically... These, these countries, there's political conflict. They need an intercessor, a mediator to come and like make the parties reconcile. And so on an appointed day, verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. He, he told them. And so he's trying to come to a, an agreement with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And as Herod spoke... Significant thing, verse 22, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. So maybe this was flattery, maybe it wasn't. Josephus, the Roman of the first century, Roman Jewish scholar, he also records this event. And this appointed day was, was likely a festival, a day of honor for the Roman emperor. And so Herod takes his, his opportunity to, to deliver a message to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And he records, Josephus records that Herod was in his robes and all the glory that came along with him coming to the throne. And he records that the people hailed him as a god. And Herod neither affirmed nor denied this ascription of divinity to him. And then Josephus says that at that point, he fell sick 
He was taken to his bedchamber, and then five days later, he died. Luke says it this way in verse 23, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God will get glory. One cannot stand in the way of the purposes of God and succeed. His kingdom is advancing and he calls all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their self-exalting kingdoms and to submit to King Jesus, who is the only one who can bring true and lasting deliverance. The kingdom of this world makes all sorts of promises of deliverance and promises of joy and satisfaction. And yet the kingdom of this world will come to nothing. It will come to nothing. And because Jesus has ensured the defeat of all his enemies when he died and rose again. And so the judgment of Herod here, which is... Again, by implication, a judgment because of his persecution of the church. It is a reminder that those who oppose God and his son, Jesus, will lose. To exalt yourself and to build your own kingdom is to fight a losing battle. And yet Jesus came and died because of your and my self-exaltation. Jesus died because we were trying to build our own kingdoms and do our own thing. Jesus died while we were still running from him and opposing him. And so this morning, that struggle can be over. I I pray that God brings us to the end of ourselves, that he would give us a complete dissatisfaction with the darkness of this world's kingdom. And that he would give us eyes to see the light of the kingdom of God. Friends, turn away from yourself. Turn away from building your own kingdom. Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things. And so as long as you have life and breath, turn to him. Turn to Christ, you can, be, you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and into joyful submission to the one who reigns over all things. That can happen this morning. I pray that it does, and I pray that, that verse 24 will continue to happen even in our midst and in our city. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This chapter seemed to begin so well for Herod and looked so dark for the church. But the chapter ends with God's enemies being defeated and the gospel winning. The gospel will continue to go to the Gentiles. It will continue to go to the ends of the earth despite worldly opposition. And such a radical reversal shows the reality of the unstoppable progress and nature of the kingdom of God and the gospel. And that should be a great encouragement to us. God will glorify himself through saving a people, through advancing his kingdom, through proclaiming the gospel through his people, 
And although there is opposition from the world to the progress of the gospel, God is also a loving, caring shepherd who deals decisively with those who oppose his people. There is no injustice. There is no wrong done to the people of God, no opposition to Jesus that will go unnoticed. There's no man or system that can defeat the kingdom of God. You can rest assured that that Proverbs 21.1 is true. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2 Verse 21, the Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. There is no man outside of the sovereign control of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He doesn't exist. And so this chapter in, in Acts 12 reminds us as well that although God is sovereign, he is in control, that does not negate our praying doesn't negate our responsibility to be devoted to prayer. I mean, last week we saw that God will accomplish his purposes, but he will accomplish his purposes by sending his people. And so he sends his people because the nations must hear. They must receive the word. And so Jesus saves and his people proclaim Jesus. And in the same way, God will advance the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable, but God will do that through answering the prayers of his people. So it's not an either or. He will ordain the end that his gospel will advance, and he ordains the means, the way it's going to happen, which is through the prayers of his people and through sending his people out to proclaim Jesus. So he will accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people, and he will be sure to have a praying people. And when things look dark for the church, and when the church is marginalized and persecuted, God can be trusted. Like, he is in control. He is acting to glorify himself, and he is acting to spread the fame of Jesus. And so we must have a calm, secure trust in this God and in his provision and his goodness and his wisdom as he works out his purposes for us and through us as we seek to obey him and to make disciples of all nations. And these dark times should land us on our knees asking for God's grace and his deliverance. And we can be sure that that until God accomplishes his purposes, that we as his people are safe and we are secure in him. God will finish the work that he has begun. God still had work for Peter to do, and so therefore he delivered Peter. James's ministry was over, and so God took him home. And so as God is in control, we must believe that there is a greater purpose to our existence than our safety and our security. Like the, new te- the writings of the New Testament assume that for the gospel to advance, there will be suffering, there will be persecution, and there will be discomfort. And God's messengers, they will come and go. 
But the word of God will continue to increase. The word of God will continue to multiply and move to the ends of the earth. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why the Apostle Paul was so impossible. Like, you kill him, he wins. If you leave him alone, he wins. If you put him in prison, he's going to win. The gospel is going to advance through his imprisonment. And we're not going to be able to say this if we are not trusting in the sovereign God who loves us and knows what is best for us. Church family, we must take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus. It's the only way to be his disciple. And our assurance and our rest, it, it must be in his goodness and his, his grace and his mercy. And regardless of how chaotic things look, things never look chaotic to God, ever. Like he governs the chaos. And the world is chaotic, so we must believe that. And the world will oppose the kingdom. And our assurance is in this sovereign king of glory, knowing that his gospel is unstoppable regardless of what it looks like on the outside. His reign and his rule is not a past event that we look back on. Like Jesus still reigning, is reigning and ruling even now. And he is still advancing his gospel and saving his church. Mark Howard, the founder of Elam Ministries, a ministry that is, their goal is to strengthen the church in Iran. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I just kind of, by chance, in a way, ran across this article that he posted just a couple days ago. And it reminds us of the unstoppable nature of God's kingdom. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. And over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All the missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. And the church came under tremendous pressure. So just place yourself in this context as a follower of Jesus. Many feared that the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. And one of the biggest factors is that many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully to boldly and faithfully proclaim Jesus in the face of persecution. 
And as a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the past 20 years than in the first 13 centuries combined since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were estimated 500 Christians who were from a Muslim background. And in 1979, there were 38 million people in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some say more than a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church, and instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing church in the world and is influencing the region for Christ. We are living in a time when many Christians are suffering for their faith, particularly in Islamic contexts, and people often react by preaching fear and hatred of the Muslim world, and sadly, many Christians do this. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12 that we are to rejoice in hope. We are to be patient in tribulation. We are to be constant in prayer. This is our call. And the story that God is writing for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and to remain confident in our sovereign Lord and in the unstoppable power of his gospel. Jesus will build his church. It is a promise. Access family, despite worldly opposition, God's kingdom will continue to advance and his gospel will multiply because his gospel is the power of God that leads to our salvation. And so this morning, we have the gracious opportunity of being reminded of that gospel and having a visible picture of it through the Lord's Supper. And so we come together every single week as a family because we so easily forget that the gospel is advancing, that the gospel has won. And so we have to be reminded of this, and we have to remind each other of it. And so through the Lord's table, we are reminded that Jesus has lived and died and has risen victoriously over his enemies and that he is reigning and ruling even today. And so our tradition at the Axis, we will have servers up front, and there's going to be broken pieces of bread, which remind us a visible picture of the broken body of Christ on our behalf. And we'll take that, that bread and dip it into the juice of the wine, and that is a visible picture of the blood of Jesus that has been poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a meal for Christ followers. This is a meal for his people. And so if you have not trusted Jesus, we ask that you abstain from this meal because to partake of this is to say that you have personally experienced the spiritual rescue that is available through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you would believe Jesus this morning. Church family, come, and as you partake, be encouraged that Jesus has said, it is finished that he is reigning and ruling, that his kingdom is advancing, and that we as a church are united in this journey of proclaiming him and living on his mission and seeing his purposes accomplished. May that continue to happen through us and in us. Let me pray.
Father, we acknowledge how weak and broken we are. Father, we acknowledge that we can do nothing without you. Father, we acknowledge that we are often fearful and anxious and we disbelieve the truth that your gospel will advance and multiply. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage us even now, that you would strengthen us, that you would embolden us to faithfully proclaim the gospel, that we would live lives of sacrificial generosity, Father, I pray that as we experience opposition and hostility and marginalization, Father, that we would stand firm in the truth of your word and on the promise that you are building your church. Father, would you use us to do that? Would you cause us to be desperate for your spirit and for the power of the gospel to take root in our own hearts, in our homes, in our communities? in this city, and across the globe. And Father, we pray that you would send us as your people to accomplish your purposes. Lord, thank you that we have a hope that one day Christ will return and that we will see him face to face. And I pray that as we partake of your table even now, that you would remind us of these truths and that you would build us up as your church. We pray this in Christ's name.